0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I am thrilled you are able to join us today. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about ambiguous loss. Now, if you liked our opening music, it's called Claring Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can find that on any of your favorite music platforms. And today's show is in collaboration with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team and the Friends of the Ramsey County Libraries. We are so excited to work together during this time to be able to provide resources and information to caregivers and people living with dementia During the pandemic, I know you're going to enjoy this show. I always like to do a couple of shout outs. Arthur's Senior Care, we do a memory cafe the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. And that is virtual. So anybody around the world can join us. Starts at 1 o'clock Central. Also on Wednesday, the last Wednesday of each month, I facilitate a support group connecting with others that are dealing with dementia with Brookdale North Oaks. And it's held at the Shoreview Community Center. And we meet again live at 10 a.m. So I want to, of course, mention Dementia Map, where you can find so many great services, products, and tools free access you don't need to give us any personal information we want to keep it simple for you and if you are listening and have a service product or tool uh, you can also have a listing which is free or we have enhanced ones i'd be more than glad to speak with you about that just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. On there, you'll find things like the Memory Cafe, Coral Faith, who is still allowing people to download two of their apps for free. You will hear from, oh, so many others like Saltbox TV and the Footbar Walker. And I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. I do want to mention a couple others. On November 2nd, Brace, which is a dementia research charity, is hosting a conference called Dementia Together. And you can find information about that on Alzheimer's Speaks website, along with the Plymouth International Virtual Dementia Conference, uh, which is being held on Wednesdays on October 27th, November 3rd, and November 10th. And that one is free. So we're going to hear from the Footbar walker, and we will be right back
1: introducing the life-changing foot bar walker. I'm Peggy
0: from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm
1: 91 years old. The foot bar walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle
0: came back. Um, We are going to be talking about ambiguous loss, what that means and how to deal with that, especially during this time of pandemic and change. And we have a renowned authority on that. Pauline boss is with us and she really is a pioneer researcher, a theorist on ambiguous loss and she actually coined that term back in the 1970s. She is the author of eight books which include Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief, Loving Someone Who Has Dementia and her new one which is coming out in uh, December, Myth of closure, ambiguous loss in the time of pandemic and change. And I can't wait to read that one. All of her books are absolutely fabulous. So with no further ado, let's talk to Pauline. Well, Pauline, like I said, I am so thrilled to have you with us on the show today. And one of the questions that I ask everybody who is a guest is, have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends?
1: Well, yes, I have when I was very young. In fact, uh, my grandmother, who was an immigrant and never got over homesickness, had what they called hardening of the arteries in those days. And uh, she had dementia, of course, as we know now. Uh, and yet I loved her so uh, and stayed with her until, in fact, the day she died. And, and so she was my first experience with someone who didn't make sense all the time. Then more recently, of course, I've been a caregiver for my husband who passed away in September. Uh, he didn't have dementia. He had many other maladies. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but also he had polio when he was young. And his he also uh, was an athlete so that his body was just worn out. So I had to learn how to take blood samples and how to do wound care and so on. And in the last maybe two weeks of his life, when he had more small strokes, he didn't make sense at that time. But primarily what I learned was... <laughs> That it's easier to, to write a book on caregiving than it is to do it. I have great respect for caregivers now, who whether or not they're caregiving for dementia or some other malady. So I learned the hard way how very difficult caregiving is.
0: That is so true. None of us sign up for that position. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of volleyed to us and we're in the game of life. And so push, push forward with it. You know, I think it's a term too, that we have to learn to adjust to, uh, because I think even the word itself portrays a, kind of a crisis. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I guess I'd like your thoughts on this, that, that, caregiving is really a natural state. It just changes throughout our lives. Some of it we sign up for, like when we decide we're going to be a parent. Some of it we don't, but we're always giving and receiving care from others around us if we know them or not in in terms of how we react. And so I, I think the word caregiver kind of sets us up to thinking we're giving it all away the majority of the time.
1: I think perhaps a caregiving in your older years uh, may be the term I use is reluctant caregiver. It's like we've raised our children, we've taken care of the ill. Uh, we've seen to it that our family and grandchildren are okay. And now, oh my goodness, now I'm at it again. And so I think that's the beginning of it. And you slide into it. You don't quite know when it began. And all of a sudden, someone says you're a caregiver. And then you say, really? And you realize that this is what you've been doing. And in fact, I think it makes us grow. Uh, We have to be careful of our own health, of course, at the same time. But it makes us even more mature emotionally, I think.
0: I agree. And I like that slide because it truly is. All of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're just like, what? How did we get here? You know, Absolutely. What
1: Absolutely.
0: happened? Well, today we're going to be talking about ambiguous loss. And I know probably a lot of people in our audience don't really know what that means. I'm sure they've experienced it. But can you define ambiguous loss? I know that that's a, a word that you termed, I think, back in the 70s. And I think it's just such an important term and phrase that people understand because I think it just gives relevance for what they're going through when a lot of times they don't know?
1: Well, ambiguous loss simply means an unclear loss. Uh, Unlike death, where you have a death certificate and you may have a body to bury or remains to cremate, uh, at least you have an official validation that you have lost something through the death certificate. With an ambiguous loss, there is no validation. Uh, There is only uncertainty about when that ambiguous loss might clear up. You're not sure. And it can go on and on, sometimes for a lifetime with kidnappings or war losses and so on. There are two kinds of ambiguous loss. The first is physical, where the person is physically missing, like soldiers missing in action or children who are kidnapped. Or more commonly, someone who left you, divorced you, or something like that. Or someone who gave a baby away and you're adopted. The other kind of ambiguous loss is more psychological. And that has more to do with caregiving for dementia. Because the person who has dementia is here, but not here. Physically present, but psychologically absent. And that incongruence is very upsetting for people who are around a person like that. They are here and then they are gone. And sometimes they come back again for a little while and then they're gone again. That's beyond human expectation and therefore very stressful.
0: Yeah, when you talk about coming back, I I remember so many moments of clarity with my mom. My mom lived with dementia for 30 years which a lot of people go, oh, that's not even possible. And I'm like, yeah, it is. She was really misdiagnosed for 10 years. They kept telling her it was her hormones. And she just kept saying, this isn't my girlfriend's hormones. And there were just these moments where you weren't expecting anything, no communication, no anything. And I remember one time after three years, she said my name, just out of the blue, in a, in a full coherent sentence. And, and then I just sat on her bed and I cried for two hours because oh, I... I didn't realize how much I missed that. And I think that's what those moments of clarity bring back, you know, and then you kind of almost start reliving it all over again, the loss that you're going through. Um, But I think I learned to appreciate those moments instead of kind of going down the sewer, you know, the the whirlwind of depression, which is is tough to pull yourself out of. You know, I remember hearing about ambiguous loss really for the first time during 9-11. I mean, the whole world was dealing with that. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't you do some some significant
1: work during that period of time with survivors? Yes, I was called in by a labor union president whose wife had studied with me. And therefore, he knew that I worked with families of the missing. And so we worked with the 32 BJ people, SEIU people in New York City, The workers who cooked and cleaned in the trade towers and ran the elevators and ran the heating and the cooling. I went in and I took some graduate students from the University of Minnesota with me. And we went in and out, I would say, for almost two years. But we had family meetings about ambiguous loss because that's what it was. People were missing in the smoking pile. Um, They didn't know if their loved ones were dead or alive, their mothers and fathers who worked in the trade towers. And by the way, half of the people who lost loved ones that day still don't have evidence today of certainty that their loved one died in, in the fire and in the building collapse. Eventually, they will have because pathologists are still working on DNA. And of course, DNA is a wonderful technology to help people around the world who have missing loved ones to eventually find out if they are truly dead or alive.
0: Well, the reason I bring it up is because I think sometimes people... dementia in this own little bubble. And yet, I think there's so many experiences that we go through that others are going through, that it can over overlay. So thank you for for sharing that. I'd like you to talk about how an experience with dementia deals with ambiguous loss and and who does it hit? Is it just the person caring for them?
1: Or could it be the person with dementia as well? You're right, Lori, it affects both the patient and the caregiver, the family members and friends who love the person, who is starting to have cognitive issues. Let's start with the patient. Let's start with the person who suddenly realizes they can't think the way they used to or they are forgetting things. They frequently tell me they, uh, they recognize they are having an ambiguous loss. They're having the ambiguous loss of their own memory of their own cognitive abilities. In my newest book, the 2021 book, I've said that there is such a thing as personal ambiguous loss. Psychologically, it would be when you realize you're losing your memory and your cognitive skills. But physically, it could be when you lose a limb or when you lose something physically that won't allow you to have uh, a lifestyle that you wanted before. So there can be personal ambiguous loss. But let's talk about the caregiver and the family members, too. Their ambiguous loss is with the relationship with the other person, whereas personal ambiguous loss was a relationship with yourself, your own memory, or your own arm or leg, which you now have lost. With a caregiver, with the family members and friends, they have lost the person they thought they knew. And they frequently say things like that. Uh, she's not herself anymore. They still love that person, but it does interfere. It ruptures, I let me say, it ruptures the relationship. And that's very painful to see the person in front of you physically present. And you're caring for them and they're there, but they aren't quite the way they used to be. It causes loneliness, it causes uh, even aggravation, sometimes anger, sometimes hopelessness, Uh, is very, very hard on caregivers.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm just going to ask one question because I think, you know, I brought up the person with dementia because a lot of times people. Don't put them in this equation that they're going through this process. And I think that that's really important to find out. And you had mentioned kind of that personal loss. I'm wondering if ambiguous loss would apply to when they're trying to recall and someone saying, well, I'm your wife or I'm your husband or I'm your son and their brain's going tick, tick, tick. It's not, you know, it isn't clicking. What would you call that? That you're feeling? Because I would think that that, that's some type of loss. I don't know if it falls into that definition, though.
1: I'm not sure I can answer that. I was talking about early onset Mm -hmm. dementia, when people are still aware, cognitively aware that something is wrong. I'm not thinking or remembering like I used to. With a deeper dementia, I'm not a neuropsychologist, so I'm not sure what's going on. My hunch is, let me say it this way, my my hypothesis is that it might be harder on the person early on when they're still aware that they're losing their mind and their memory, and that perhaps later on, they're not aware, but I, I don't know that for sure.
0: Yeah, I would say from my own experience with my mom, there was definitely greater frustration and angst. When she knew she didn't know. And then there was like this release of, I always call it kind of the release of ego, where she just didn't really care anymore. She didn't care if people were judging her. That wasn't even a word she thought about, which I think is on a lot of people's minds. You know, what's everybody thinking? When she was able to let that go or it left her, however that happens, because we don't really know, her journey was much more comfortable and less stressed.
1: I think we have to be careful with people who have dementia, not early on, but well into it, that they are intentionally doing something. I doubt that they are. But again, I say that's not my area of expertise. Um, And I think we need to just go along with wherever they are at the time or existentially. But early on, Uh, my, My hunch is that early on, Alzheimer's is the most painful for them. Great.
0: Thank you. Now, you have written a book called Loving Someone with Dementia. And that talks about anticipatory grief and coping and all the changes in, in the personality and in the lifestyle that are just typically, I would say most care partners would say out of control because they don't know what to expect. And yet we're, we're trying to put it back in the box. We're trying to put it all back together and, and keep control of everything. What do you think helps most people reconcile with the changes?
1: Well, definitely a flexibility or a resilience. When, when you're faced with a problem that has no solution, like Alzheimer's or dementia from traumatic brain injury or the over 80 kinds of dementia there are, there probably isn't a solution for that, uh, or you've exhausted uh, the inquiry about solutions. So the only way to cope is to become stronger yourself, to become resilient. Now, resilience means you bend, but you come back up again. And you come back up stronger than you were before. That's the key term to resilience It's growth. So you may have learned new skills for caregiving that makes you better at it. You may have gotten more help that makes you take a day off now and then. Or you may just get better at whatever you were told to do by a nurse or whomever for this caregiving task that you're doing every day. So resilience really is the only answer when you're faced with a problem that has no solution. And I think Alzheimer's and the other dementias qualify for that.
0: Oh, I do too. And I think resilience is something that we don't talk about enough but I can't name one person that I know that has been a care partner that hasn't said they've learned and they've come out stronger. As difficult as it's been. I always tell people dementia is, is a gift wrapped in a really strange package. Now, during the pandemic, Pauline, people have really become isolated and they don't have their emotional supports. They don't have their support groups. They're limited a lot of times in terms of even seeing family and friends. They can't go to adult day. You know, many of them have shut down. Some have closed altogether. What did you find that people were doing to cope with all of these additional losses on top of giving care care? to somebody. And how do you recover from that? I'm asking this because so many families, especially when COVID first hit, came to me just almost hysterical in tears, going, I, I, I don't know. And this would be like when their loved one sometimes was even in a care community. Going, I don't know who's going to die first. I don't know when our last, I mean, they're thinking about all of these moments. And then you have others that were living at home going, I could do this before, but I had support. I, I, have, I have nobody. It's just the two of us. And I, I know I'm not doing, I'm not caring as well as I should because I'm so on edge. And when I'm on edge, they're on edge. And it's, it's kind
1: of the cycle. Well, you know, services like you're giving, Lori, are essential. Even in normal times, but during COVID, the, the Zoom, the TV, the radio, the newspaper, whatever information you had, but preferably with a live human being, were essential for, for caregivers. Also, I, I want to say something about technology. Uh, it, technology is great, and um, Zoom has been a, a godsend during this awful period, two years. uh, And it's not over yet. So the time of pandemic, I think for people who are shut in caregiving, who can't have friends come in, who can't go out to a restaurant and have lunch, God knows how that helped our week if we could do that. I want to say something to family members, younger family members. I know that they're very good with technology so that they don't telephone anymore and they don't even email. They may Zoom on special occasions, which is wonderful, by the way, but please telephone caregivers because they have nobody to talk to. And one of the things I noticed in my case was That my voice, I was losing my voice because I wasn't using it. I wasn't talking to anybody sometimes for a week at a time. And when then people will text and you'll say, gosh, a telephone call would really be nice. So that's one of the things that I think caregivers need is a human voice, a human face. And those of us uh, like you, Lori, who are giving programs to them for help, Is essential and the help should be both emotional support and informational support. And the third would be managerial support. In the past, women caregivers used emotional caregiving support more, men did more managerial. And what they've learned is that a good caregiver needs both, regardless of their gender. So Zooms are terrific. Thank God for Zoom during this terrible, terrible time. But please encourage friends to call, at least to use your voice and to hear the inflections and the human voice again. Yeah, I I think it's really
0: important. I'm going to add to that. We have a, a neighbor who is not dealing with dementia, but with cancer. And my grandchildren gave him a card. They made him cards. And the wife just broke down and just said, this is the first card he's received, not even from his own family. And so sometimes we forget little things, and I'm not pointing that out to say shame on anybody, but we forget. We get busy with our lives, and little kids love doing stuff like that. Yes, and. Putting something like that in the mail or knocking on the door and running away because you don't want to be too close with COVID, I think can also have a big impact. Sending cards to people, which again, we've kind of gotten away from this, you know, my daughter is 34. She rarely answers her phone. Everything's by text or Facebook, but technology has changed the way we live and how we operate. But we have to understand that we don't live in this world alone. And so we have to use multiple ways to communicate. And we have to understand, what do you need, Pauline? What do I need? It's, it's yes. going to be different. And that's okay. And we can meet those needs. And those that
1: don't use the phone might find that they kind of like it. Yes. And they're generational differences. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the problem they don't recognize that there's a generation of caregivers. Chances are over 50, maybe over 60, even 70, 80, sometimes 90. And the younger generation has to realize that they communicate differently. They, their needs are different.
0: Yeah. And now we have so many different ways to communicate. I mean, it's confusing to to just about anybody. It's I, I hear that from people, especially who are dealing with dementia. It's like, I saw a message, but I'm not sure where it popped up from. (laughs) Was it my LinkedIn? Was it my email? Was it my messenger? Was it a Facebook? Like that can cause anxiety.
1: And loneliness. I think loneliness is what I was trying to get at too. That you need to have a human connection. A human connection is the best therapy for sadness. Mm -hmm. And tell me a caregiver who isn't sad. We're all sad. We're not depressed. Uh, Maybe a portion of caregivers are depressed, but my hunch is we're all sad. And human connection is the solution for sadness.
0: Well, and the other thing, too, that, you know, when you bring up about how we communicate, I think is important as well, because you add on to that sadness If people can't communicate the way they need to, like if someone's trying to force them to text or force them to use technology and it's just not in their real house and they're not comfortable with it, then on top of that sadness, you're adding, now I'm incompetent. Now I'm not relevant and just deepens that. And a lot of times I don't think we take that into consideration because we're in our fast paced world. But boy, when you slow down people, you can learn so much from others. Now we talked about Zooming and um, one of the things we didn't talk about was like Facebook groups. And I found these really interesting. You know, when I stepped into this space back in 2009, people said, oh, those aren't real relationships. And yet people in those caregiving Facebook groups are like, hey, these relationships are more solid
1: But that's a peer group, Laurie. Mm -hmm. And a peer group Facebook uh, would be more powerful than just ad hoc. Mm -hmm. So peer groups, there's research that shows that peer groups with the same disease or the same uh, addiction or the same whatever are very functional and that the online peer groups are as functional as in-person peer groups. So uh, I really do support peer groups in any shape or form. In this case, it would be peer groups of people who are caregivers. And online or in-person, or whether it's a book group or a coffee group, they're all very powerful.
0: Yeah. And there are groups out there as well for people with dementia. Like one of the things that I love, and I don't even know if you're familiar with this one, it's called Dementia Mentors. And they, you know, someone who is newly diagnosed can sign up to be mentored by a person who has dementia because they're really the only ones that know really what it feels like That's right. to, to kind of get that bomb dropped on them. And see that people are looking at them different, treating them different, interacting with them different, or many times even just pulling away. Things like Dementia Mentors is wonderful because it helps people, I think, move through the the cycle of depression, which is normal, and angst and anger and all of that when you get a, a chronic illness, and puts them in this realm of empowerment and advocacy and So many of them go on to become mentors for others. And it's just, it's a really, it's kind of a beautiful thing to see and to hear their voices raised because we are starting to hear from more people with dementia on what it's like. Anything else that you wanted to add as far as creative solutions that, that people could maybe tap into anything we missed there?
1: Well, what I've written about even more so in the new book is both and thinking. One of the ways to stay resilient, if someone you love has dementia, is to stop thinking in absolutes. You either have to be dead or alive. You either have to be here or gone. You either have to be absent or present. And the new way of thinking that will help you and lower your stress is that he is both here and sometimes gone. Uh, She is both present and sometimes absent. I am both a good caregiver and sometimes I could do better, or however you want to say it. You have to have humor about this, by the way. But give up absolute thinking. Both and thinking is more of an Eastern way of thinking. In a more Western way of thinking, such as our society, we like perfection, we like certainty. We like absolutes, but working with dementia, you have none of that. So shift your way of thinking to both end. He is both here and gone. She is both present and absent sometimes.
0: And I think looking in the mirror, realizing, like you said, we're not perfect, we're not attentive all the time, we're not always there, none of us are, we kind of float in and out, we have different times. Granted, it's accelerated and more pronounced a lot of times as dementia progresses, but the truth is none of us are there 100% of the time. Right.
1: And And it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I I use the term good enough relationship, that a caregiver needs to be good enough. If you strive for perfection, you'll wear yourself out. And as we know, caregivers die at a rate 62% higher than their same age group. So you want to take care of yourself. And one of the ways is allow yourself just to be good enough. You don't have to be perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I personally, in my journey, I kind of kicked perfection to the curb. And I say it's all about progress. And also, in terms of if it's running a business, if it's caring for an individual, we can always do better. So stop thinking, you know, especially to organizations. I think a lot of times, Everybody, you know, it's got to be perfect before we launch. It's never if you're really doing your job. In my opinion, it'll never be perfect. Right. It'll it'll be fluid, and to me, that's a big shift. I think our world here, especially in the U.S., has to make it. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And realizing too that you know a lot of times the detours that are brought to us through dementia are great gifts. I mean, think in life how many times just if you're traveling on a road. And you're like, oh, you're so upset. You know, it's going to take some time away because you're, you're, it's not a straight shot anymore. It's not the fastest route. And then all of a sudden you find something beautiful on that detour. But if we don't let ourselves take those detours, we're losing out.
1: Right. And we're adding stress. Yeah. The tolerance for ambiguity is that you value new experiences and challenge, that you're willing to be an adventurer and My goodness, I think being a caregiver is an adventure.
0: It sure is. It sure is. Now, I really want to talk about your new book, which is called Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change. I I mean, there couldn't be, I never thought the pandemic was going to last this long. And the amount of change the world as a whole is going through this is, uh, I mean, your timing of your book couldn't be more perfect with all of this. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about why you decided this book was important to write? And then we'll kind of dig a little deeper from there.
1: Oh, my. Well, I started this book more than five years ago. And then as my husband was first on a walker, and then in a wheelchair, I gave it up, I set it aside. And so I picked it up after he passed away and finished it because I think it's an important message, even with death uh, and certainly with dementia. And it was from working with dementia and missing persons that I came to the idea that there is no closure. There certainly is no closure for people with ambiguous losses, uh, a kidnapped person, uh, a missing soldier or psychologically, dementia, addiction, chronic, serious mental illness, etc. So I learned from working with an extreme kind of loss that there was no closure. But as I progressed, I could see that there was no closure with death either, even though you have a death certificate in your hand. And now the new research in the grief literature is this, we learn to live with loss and grief. We don't get over it. So the five stages of Kubler-Ross are no longer valid. Uh, She herself wrote that in her last books, but no one reads her last books. So uh, she, she said it's messy. It's messy. It's not in neat, five stages. What we need to do instead is find meaning and new hope in our losses. And sometimes a loss has no meaning. It's nonsensical. It's like a murder or a baby that dies and so on. But you can find even meaninglessness is a meaning that it makes no sense. And what people do is they find a purpose in life to make sense of their loss. As you said, mentors and people who train other caregivers and or work to raise funds for a particular disease or run in a marathon for a particular disease. When my little brother died of polio, the summer before the sock vaccine came out, our family went door to door for the March dimes, collecting dimes, which in fact did help to bring about a vaccine that was very useful. So we have to find a new purpose in life. And even if you're still caregiving, it's all right for you to think about that. Uh, what are you going to do when you're no longer a caregiver? It's all right to imagine that and explore that uh, so that it, that you have some thoughts in your head when the time does come. And of course, um, that's the new hope, something new to hope for uh, down the line. And those are things we need to live with caregiving and what comes after caregiving.
0: You know, there's so many things there that you said. One, I want to just comment on the March of Dimes. I wish we would get back to that as a society. It doesn't take a lot from one. It can take a little from a lot. And I think so often in society, everybody thinks it has to be big and brash and bold. Some of the tiniest little things have, have such a huge impact and they allow inclusivity when it comes to giving yeah you know, everybody can give up a dime for the most part. I mean you can't even make a phone call or buy a piece of gum for that anymore <laughs> you know like, I mean, a dime used to have a lot more value when I was a kid, you know we used to have penny candy. It still matters, it still and, matters. and when you talked about being able to to give back, one could be raising funds, but one is advocating the other, I think that is really important. And, and that's one of the reasons we create Dave uh, with uh, memory cafe, and I created a dementia map was so many people create services, products, or tools, or just general knowledge through a blog, through a video that can help people out. True. Um, and yet we have to have some kind of, place to find all that stuff because we don't even know it's there. Uh, and I'll just use Dementia Map as a as an example. We have people living with dementia who have great resources. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Truthful Loving Kindness has tons of stories that she has written in articles, not only about herself, but about others, about how they've adapted, what works, what doesn't, showing that dementia isn't just one path, it it spurts out all over, everyone does it different. But the more information we have, the better. Dr. Jennifer Butte over in the UK has written a book, she's got some great videos. I mean, there's so many People out there, you are seeing more books on dementia written by family caregivers, written by people living with the disease. You know, you're seeing people speak up at conferences that we didn't hear from before, or creating support groups or memory cafes. All of these things are critically important, not just to you. And and a lot of times people don't even know what they're going to get back by giving. But you get back so much more than what you give. But to see people kind of revel in that support, I think there's this thing in our society where we're going to fix that. And we can't fix this. We just have to support this. And like you said, be emotionally available for people to tell their own stories and not judge. Uh, That is one of the safest places I think anybody can be in the world
1: is to be supported and not judged. And increase our tolerance for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Because we're not accustomed to that of somebody who's here, but not here. Yep. Uh, and, and back and forth. And that can be fun. Have a meeting without an agenda. Uh, go somewhere without a map. Try and get lost when you go on a Sunday drive and just have fun. Don't have a destination. There are many other ways. Improvisation. Fishing is another way to increase your tolerance for ambiguity. Uh, play a new game, read a new book, meet a new friend of a different race uh, or culture than, or religion than you have known before. Try something different. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The
0: other thing you had mentioned was uh, our Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team created a dementia caregiver reentry program. And I think that is something that could be utilized in a lot of different venues, but it's just bringing that peer group together as they maneuver. What are the next steps? What we found in terms of talking with people uh, prior to launching was they didn't want a grief group. You know, a grief group is eight weeks and then goodbye. So they make these friends and then they're like, okay, now I'm back where I started (laughs) from again on my own. They wanted a group where they could just, get together and talk they could talk offline not when they're in physical meetings but they you know shared phone numbers and go out for lunch it was just just an incredible thing so there's always new things that can be developed and anybody at any age can partake in that there's a little girl who collects puzzles thousands of puzzles she gets, and then she mails them out to communities and to individual households. So, you know, anybody can do anything, they, they just have to start. And once you start and you start talking about it, you will align with others that will support you and move forward. And then bring it to the dementia map too.
1: (laughs) I want to say something about, um, they didn't want a grief group. I can totally understand that. Because caregivers for dementia have been grieving along the way. Yeah. They they have been grieving, sometimes for years. So I cheer them on. I think that's a wonderful idea to have that peer group. Yes.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's almost dangerous for people to want to have... Because uh, I think a lot of my friends, they, they're they like waiting for when the closure will be. Like like when it's yes, over it's with.
1: It is not recommended. Because closure is a perfectly good word for a real estate deal or for a road when it's flooding. But it is not a good word for human relationships. You have loved this person, or you could even have been angry with this person. But in any case, they will leave their mark on who you are. And so there is no closure. We instead learn to live with loss. And we remember and honor people or if you want to uh, be angry at them, that's okay too. But they, they have left their mark on us. And it, it's more like a patchwork quilt that each person you have loved or had a relationship with, good or bad, has left a patch on who you are. And, and then we move forward, either trying to emulate them or honor them or not be like them, whatever fits for you but they have left their mark on us. In a good relationship, you remember this person, and occasionally you're still sad 20 years from now when, when you hear a particular song or you're at a particular place, uh, that is normal. So it is normal to live with grief. It is not considered appropriate to have closure. The term is called continuing bonds. And that is the new approach in grief now, that you can have continuing bonds, symbolically, I'm talking about, symbolically, and in memory, and in honoring and memorials with the dead. Uh, You don't need closure.
0: I, I love that. I know when my dad died, and he didn't have dementia, he had brain cancer. But I initially, and I don't know what they termed it, but I just spun and spun and spun with his grief because I was there at the end and I had my hand on his chest and I could actually feel his energy go up my arm when he left his body. Mm. And it, which was a beautiful thing to experience. And yet I just kept reliving that, reliving that, reliving that because he and I were so close. And that taught me that i had to look at my grief differently that i was hurting so bad but i couldn't hurt that bad if i first didn't have the opportunity to love so deep and that kind of helped pull me out and go how lucky am i to hurt like this and to have these yes. sad feelings at times because wow what a great relationship
1: you had a, you had what's called a normal grief um what is been true in the past with the five steps and so on, is that we have pathologized grief. And and I'm very concerned about that. We have medicalized grief. Uh, someone just asked me if I thought there should be uh, a public health service for grief. And I said, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> grief is normal. It is not a medical issue. Now, it might be for about uh, a minority of people who have a deep depression and after weeks, they still can't get themselves up. They can't do their daily functions. And sometimes we're kind of a mess for about a year. That's normal. But if you're totally immobilized for you know longer than a couple months, then you probably do need to seek some help. But for the most, for the majority of people, um, how you describe it, is normal. And we, we both are sad, but we also go about our daily work. That's the cl- clue. And how long are you immobilized is the question. Uh, if it's several months, if it's a year, that's a problem. But if it's a week or two or three or four, even, I wouldn't call that a problem. As long as you're getting up, you're, you're getting yourself dressed, you're taking care of the kids, whatever it is, you're doing your daily living. We have to remember that grief is a normal reaction to loss. It is not a medical problem. I
0: agree with that. And I think it's one of those things that people, they don't know what to say or what to do because they want to fix it again. And sometimes you just have to listen and validate what somebody's going through. I know like when I go out and speak and I'll say, well, how many times do you you just, you just need to get something off your chest? You don't expect somebody to fix something. A person with dementia is no different. A care partner is no different. Sometimes we just, we just need someone to support us to just be heard.
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: and we make it much more complicated than sometimes it needs to be because we we're just get going. <laughs> Let's get through this. You know where we've had this conversation too many times, and everybody, like you said, is a little bit different in terms of how they process grief or what's going to trigger their grief and their sadness. And, you know, we've all grown up differently with different skill sets to help support us or not support us through that process as well. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I wouldn't want to see that be too medicalized either. I just think we have to change in terms of how we look at the world, how we look at ourselves, how we look at one another and not be so judgmental and critical. And, but we live in this world where we've almost turned ourselves into the Stepford Wipes, you know, I don't know if you remember that old show where everything was always perfect. And I look at even the things going on in Facebook and people are projecting this perfect life and it, it doesn't exist. And people are trying to keep reaching those standards and then they get more depressed. It's not a true depiction of what's going on. We all have our ups and our downs and that's just normal. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm wondering if you have any particular methods or tips that you want to give somebody in terms of ambiguous loss and how they can apply those during the pandemic or when dealing with somebody with dementia or are the tools the same no matter
1: what your situation is when it comes to
0: ambiguous loss?
1: So I don't have a methodology. I have a framework or looking at the problem differently. And so, essentially, it's the theory of ambiguous loss that helps people to understand and find meaning in crazy losses like dementia, like kidnapping, like somebody disappearing after 9-11, and so on. There hasn't been nothing in the literature on that before. And so I'm very adamant about saying there's no methodology But there is a different way of thinking, a both-and way of thinking, which I mentioned, and also taking into account six what I call guidelines. I won't go into them. They're in all the books I've written in different ways. But the first one is about meaning. We discussed that. And the second one is about control and mastery over your life. And, of course, we talked about having a situation that you can't fix. And the next one is identity. And yes, your identity changes to a caregiver and then maybe to a widow or a widower after that. But hopefully you have some other identities as well. But identity changes over time. And the next one is ambivalence about you both love and hate what you're doing. And sometimes you're very angry because you can't travel or you can't do what you want to do. And that's an important time to talk with others about it because you don't want the dark side of ambivalence to end up in abuse of the elder. And then there's attachment, which I talked about. You're still attached to the person after they are gone or while they are demented, but in a different way than you were when they were healthy. And so attachment can take on different forms. And then finally, there's new hope. You have to have something new to hope for. Uh, During this, you can think about it. And after it's over, you need to look at your life for that because it's very dangerous not to have something in your mind. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of thinking that is different than all the other sort of recipes and methodologies that are out there.
0: You know, it's funny because looking at that list i just jotted them down and you know right away i thought well we need these in all of our life throughout mm-hmm. yes from the day we're born and then when i was looking at it i was thinking oh wow look at it from a child's mindset their meaning is to have fun <laughs> you know they don't really worry about control they're they're just out to play their identity changes they think that that's fun and unique ambivalence I don't think they really feel because they don't feel the weight of the world they're not thinking they're just kind of living and the attachment think of my daughter in kindergarten And her teacher during a conference said, oh, your daughter is so special. And I said, well, why do you think she's special? And she's like, well, she helps little Jimmy who's in a wheelchair and little Barbie who is just a little bit slower and she needs some help. And and Danielle is always right there to assist him. And I just laughed and I said, she's not special. She just hasn't learned they're different. She doesn't see that at all. She just sees a kid to play with and to support. And I think as adults, we have to unlearn some bad habits that we've created for ourselves and get back to kind of that child sense of things change. And what can we do now with what we have? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Just that lighter presence. The other thing you mentioned earlier that I didn't pick up on back then, and I should have, but you mentioned the importance of humor. And I just think so many times people give up their sense of humor and their laughter to disease. And I think that that can be just almost deadly and destructive to a relationship. Because for so many, that's the core of what keeps people together is just being able to have that giggle. And it changes our physiology the whole
1: nine yards. I did write about it in Loving Someone Who Has Dementia. I have some stories, very humorous stories of people, uh, caregivers who at first didn't see the humor in how their loved one is talking. But after they decide to go with the flow, they join in their conversation. Like one woman's husband said he wanted to go to New York and would she give him his hat? And so he kept saying that every day. So every day she would help him reach his hat. He never went anywhere, but it gave him pleasure to hold his hat, thinking he was going on a trip. Humor is absolutely essential. And there have been so many good books written about, about that. But please, for caregivers, see what you can in the humor. And yes, I have written about that. Uh, It's like improvisational theater, by the way, living with somebody who's ambiguously lost. Uh, You don't quite know how each day is going to pan out. And so if you can have a lighter touch about it, it helps. It lowers your stress.
0: Yeah, and lowering your stress lowers their stress because a lot of times they mirror it back, and then we're escalating one another in the in the process. I, I think there's nothing better than being able to have a sense of humor, and a lot of times people say, "Well, I, I don't want to laugh at them," and it's like you're not laughing at them; you're laughing with them. This is just your journey together, and how bizarre this can look. I have a, a friend who does a podcast called uh, Dementia Land, and she has taken it to a whole nother level. And it is so interesting and it's upbeat, just the conversations and the characters and things that she's done with that. She's written a beautiful, beautiful book and they're trying to make a movie out of it, which would be very different from anything that's been been out there because it's uh, it really is about changing that mindset. You know, once we change that mindset to one of a heart set boy, things, things get a lot easier a lot easier. Yep. Well Pauline, I I appreciate your time with us. This has just been such an honor for me to have you on the show. Um, as I mentioned offline, you've been someone I've wanted to have on Alzheimer Speaks Radio. Your work is just phenomenal. She has many books out there and you can find them all on ambiguous loss.com and uh, you can email her uh, via ambiguousloss.com forward slash contact so you go right to the the website there and there's a form you'll fill out but she like i said she's just got some great books her new one is coming out um, i believe it's december of this year 2021 mm-hmm. and that is called myth of closure ambiguous loss In a time of pandemic and change, you also might want to get ambiguous loss, learning to live with unresolved grief, and then also loving someone who has dementia. And she still has more out there. She is quite prolific in her writings and is uh, known around the world. So again, thank you so much for your time
1: today. Very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, in wrapping up, again, I hope you enjoyed this show as much as I did. Being able to speak directly to Pauline was absolutely amazing. She is just a a wealth of information. I hope that you like, click, and share this show with others. Again, go to her website, ambiguousloss.com, for further information. You can always reach out to me at radio at com or at alzheimerspeaks.com is our main website. We will be launching our new website, hopefully sooner than later. What a what a process that all is. Thank you so much, everyone, and take care. Bye-bye.
1: Hey, everybody, Jared Sebasti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.